Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah, and this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today, David Pratt is joining us to chat about Indigenous connection to land, treaty rights, and truth and reconciliation. David is the first Vice Chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations and a member of the Muscopetan First Nations. We got a hold of David at his home in Saskatoon. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Outdoors. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your current position as the Vice Chief? of the Federation of Silvern Indigenous Nations? Sure. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you, uh, Leah, for having me, you and Mike. And definitely uh, a little bit about myself. I was, uh, I'm was i a member of the Muscopeding Soto Nation in Treaty 4 territory uh, outside the city of Regina along the beautiful Coppell Valley. And that's where I'm a member of and where I grew up. I did uh, move to Saskatoon, I think, in the summer of fall of 2012 and pursued an education degree, which I graduated in 2016. I taught for a year and a half. You know, I was a guidance counselor and did all kinds of stuff and worked with high school students. And then, um, I don't know, people, a bunch of people came to me and said, you know, you need to get involved in politics. There's an election coming up for FSIN. Everybody knows you. You have connections everywhere. All our all your families in power everywhere, uh, a perfect opportune time to run. So, I made a decision in the fall of uh, or the summer of 2017 uh, when my contract was up at Thunderchild First Nation. And June 28th, I, I made a decision to go home, talk with my leadership and council, and uh, made the decision to run for second vice chief at that time. And then, of course, I was successful and I was elected that following October of 2017. And in our recent election a year ago or, or a year, about a year ago, uh, I moved up to the office of first vice chief uh, for a three year term until 2024. And I'm the current health and social development portfolio holder uh, at FSIN. Yeah, I was looking at what your portfolio is, and there's quite a bit to that. Uh, that's, that's a large one. Um, I, I know when we've been, since we are kind of focused on more outdoors and environmental education and all these sort of things, one of your portfolios is in the realm of it is a sub portfolio of environmental health. Um, can you explain a little bit more about this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. And first of all, yes, I think um, health and climate change is, and environmental health is very important to us right now. My file uh, covers water, but it's a shared file along with the Women's Commission. Of course, the, as an Indigenous culture, the, the women are the carriers of the water and life. So the Women's Commission shares that water mandate along with the Lands and Resources Commission. So we have three commissions that have a, a shared priority when it comes to water so that it's one of the biggest issues that we have here within our region is the importance of environmental health and sustainability we do know that there is a lot of resource development that happens within our region forestry mining 
um, agriculture, so on and so forth. But we're also very aware that the, the development of those resources, um, the renewable ones and the non-renewable ones are very, they all have an impact on, on the climate and the water, particularly around our region in the south. I'm, uh, you know, we're in the farm belt outside of Muscopeding, Saskatoon as well. What we're noticing is that in particularly in the Coppell Valley, there's a lot of runoff from fertilizer. Um, you know, the nitrogen in, in Pasqua Lake has, has decimated the Pasqua Lake. You know, there's a lot of algae that grows there now, and there's a lot of high level of nitrogen in the water. So it's basically turning Pasqua Lake into a dead lake because of the amounts of nitrogen that are running off from all the farmlands around the area. So, you know, when we're, when we're using things like such, such as fertilizer, which might in increase yields and crop growth and their the quality of the crop but it, we're still impacting the water and, and the in, in the area particularly around the Coppell Valley so First Nations are very concerned about the you know the environment you know in, even in the far north you know there's concerns around climate change there was a policy that the provincial government enacted a few years back uh, I don't know what they called it, but we called it the let it burn policy. There was a time when there were forest fires in the north. Um, you know, they'd send in a team, you know, they'd chopper them in, drop them off. They'd fight the fire. They'd put it out and then it prevent the fire from, from burning. Well, the provincial government, I think, is a cost saving manager under the wall government cut the, that programming in dollars. They just let for as long as the forest fires weren't near a populated area, they let them burn. But what that did was it, it impacted the environment and the caribou that um, fed on the flora and the fauna on the on the forest floor, they stopped coming south. They used to come south quite a ways in their in their migration, but because of all the damage from the fires and the and the forest floors being burnt up and the let it burn policy, um, now the Dene in the north have to go further uh, north of sixty into Northwest Territories to hunt for their caribou. Whereas they used to come south as, you know, sometimes as far south as the range and that area around that area. So climate change is impacting man-made as well as uh, natural, but we want to, uh, you know, we're very important um, protectors of the land. We do realize that it has, we're not against resource development. I want to be clear on that, but we, we, we want to ensure that it's done in such a way where it's sustainable or that the resource development is done so that it's protected for future generations. There are certainly a lot of issues and topics I'm sure that you deal with on a daily basis. Uh, we found out in our preamble that you and Mike know each other from going to university in the College of Education together. And so I'm curious how you use your education background in your current work. Well, I thank you for that question. I don't know how to, I, you know, I've met so many teachers who are in politics, like federal, provincial, and First Nations politics. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know what it is. As teachers, we get educated. We learn about history. We get fired up about social justice and, you know, equality and all these things in university through our education. And then I think when we get into the classroom, we start teaching it to kids and, you know, sharing that knowledge. And then next thing you know, we get fired up and someone says, well, you should run for politics, you know, and next thing you know, we're putting our name on the ballot and we're wherever we end up, that's where we end up. So I know that um, uh, for myself, uh, education was a very important tool. You know, I did have a, a lifelong experience being in the ministry and uh, growing up in a large family of 15, you do learn how to navigate social structures <laughs> and a pecking order. And you understand uh, right away, you uh, identify where the power is and then you uh, ingratiate yourself to that power and to try to navigate, to be successful, to survive. And I think that's what helped me uh, 
uh, growing up with just just learning how to navigate things. But in terms of education, um, education was very important. Um, you know, I, when I went into the College of Education, got accepted into the Indian Teacher Education Program, I made a lot of really good friends there. I mean, I still, we kind of lost contact. Once in a while, I kind of miss it. You know, I don't miss being broke. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, the poverty wages and chasing around the pizza, the free pizzas on campus at the presentations, the $5 pizza specials, I don't miss that. But I do miss the camaraderie. I do miss the um, the environment of learning and, and just the collegiality amongst the people, you know, discussing important issues of the day in a number of classes, whether it's history or politics or, or social um, sociology and, and other and other areas. So when I got involved there, um, I don't know, I've always, we've always, I've always been an advocate for people. I've always been outspoken. Uh, and it's just the way my family was raised. We've been involved in politics all of our lives because of our late parents. So what we would do, what I did was when I got involved in university, I saw the needs when I went to university amongst our own class, well, this is this, there's a hole here. Uh, this student supports are lacking. There's no mentoring from the higher grades. You know, we're all students were challenged getting books and textbooks and so on and so forth. Uh, there was no um, study groups. Um, you know, that, so what we did was my, me and my class that I went into the class of 2012, we kind of just, we kind of made the seniors mad because when we got there in 2020, 2012, um, we just took over student council in 2013. Like all of us just took it right over. You know, we put out, we took over all the offices and the, uh, the senior grads were a bit upset. They were, we kind of outmaneuvered them, but we didn't know there was an order. Like the seniors were supposed to go next. And then we were like the little junior shrubs, you know, we'd get one seat on council. But you had ideas. Yeah. Well, we just knew we had to, we, we, we saw things that we wanted to implement and we did implement that. We implemented a text, text exchange group at the, our student office. We did uh, institute uh, study groups for all the students because I don't know about you, Mike, and what your experience was, but it's kind of like we got to university and just like we did orientation there that one day and in the bowl and wherever else. And it's like, we went to the edge of the pool and we just got shoved in the pool and said, sink or swim, buddy, you're on your own. Good luck. Mm -hmm. See you later. There was no real mentoring and no one sharing the experiences and challenges that we were dealing with as, as first year university students. So we supported each other and we were very successful, ended up getting involved in student politics. And I thought it was to, for the socials, you know, I'll be honest, you know, we wanted to have all those fun fun events you know we heard about all these fun events in the past we're like hey let's you know let's get on uh, council you know run council we'll organize all these socials you know we'll fill all these gaps and student supports and services so and next thing you know vision 2025 happened <laughs> the college put out this the university put out this big uh 2025 long-term vision report four or five page document and i was just scrubbing through the news you know my emails one night and looked and said oh vision 2025 what's this clicked on it, hit the attachment, started reading it. Oh, it's only four or five pages. I'll browse through it real quick. Start reading through it. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh my God. I was just like, I gotta, I gotta deal with this. I said, I gotta talk to the, uh, I gotta talk to my colleagues. And I just started sounding the alarm and we organized politically. And uh, fortunately we were able, because at that time, the vision 2025 document called for the elimination of duplicate programs the only duplicates programs on campus were education and nursing and indigenous education. And yeah. And then they were, so we were on the chopping block as a college. So nobody knew this education students decided had no clue. They were all in their internship. 
And so I was like, hey, guys, this is what's going on. We're on the chop. Like, we're going to be fine. We'll get out here with our degrees. It's the ones coming behind us. They'll have no, if they want to go to college or university for education, they'll have to go to U of R. I said, so we need to fight for the college. So we did fight for the college. Um, they wanted to get rid of all the indigenous programs. And in the words of former President Eileen Bush Vishniak, to ensure student success, put all the indigenous students in one classroom. And when I asked her why she would do this, I said, you're getting rid of programs that are um, working. They're, you know, they're meeting the four main pillars of engagement at the university, which is student retention, recruitment. I said, you want to gut those programs by getting rid of them to ensure success. And when I asked her that, she was like, well, you're all growing as a population. She said, um, you're going to be the mainstream classroom in a few years because you have the numbers. And I was like, what the hell? Who's advising you, lady? You know what I mean? So ended up becoming a political fight. We got organized. And fortunately, fortunately, in my term of office, um, I got to see the death of, of Vision 2025 and see it voted down at, at university council. So that's a good achievement. And it taught me then how to organize, how to build consensus, how to campaign in the various colleges, and how to bring everybody together because we were successful in getting um, all of our people um, elected to positions throughout the campus on university council. And we built a number of allies uh, in those areas. And then when I ran for FSIN, well, it was just more or less the same thing, building consensus, getting out to the tribal councils, meeting the individual First Nations, hearing what their concerns were, and then building a consensus around that uh, to get things moving. So it was a very key part, I think, of where I am today and well, the amount of success that, I, that I've been able to achieve. Mm-hmm. No kidding. And with your role with FSIN, you, you travel around Saskatchewan quite a bit, and I'm sure you've had a chance to see lots of different groups and visit with so many people. I know you're a very social person as well, but have you seen kind of what's your experience been in seeing firsthand the importance of land and the environment to indigenous populations in the province? The the connection to the land is everywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's in the South. I think people are very um, cognizant of that connection that we have, you know, as indigenous people, like, of course, we've been here for thousands of years, you know, um, occupying this land and these territories and also working with people um, north and south. Like, I just love how our people just still have that connection, like even hunting, you know, we still harvest our animals. We still practice the treaty right to hunt. You know, we still harvest moose, elk, deer, um, you know, um, ducks, uh, fishing, you know, we still, we can't, but I noticed we can't eat the fish anymore in the South. There was a time when we were kids, we'd be able to eat the fish. I do not eat any of the fish anywhere but grow on last mountain Lake or anywhere in the, in the, the Coppell lakes too, as well. I will eat the fish in the North. The fish in the North are still good pickerel, you know, all the white fish, everything else. And I love going to the North. It's so beautiful. The people have hung on to their land, their culture. They know how to smoke fish still. They have had beaver tail up there. I've had, uh, I've ate everything. I've even had caribou blood soup cooked traditionally with hot stones inside the stomach of a caribou. I've had that. And uh, I feel blessed that I've been given all these great opportunities to experience all these wonderful things and the culture and the connection to the land is still there. And the people are just, in, even though Indigenous people have gone through so much in their history uh, and, and challenges and dealing with colonization, um, they still know how to laugh. They still know how to have a good time. They, they still 
uh, know how to be generous and to treat people good and, and to be welcoming. Do we have a lot of work to do yet? Of course, by all means. But I think it's that, it's that, um, it's a word that they use resiliency. And I think a lot of that has to do because of our connection to the land and the importance of preserving the land for future generations. We know there's a lot of organizations, including Sask Outdoors, that are looking to improve our diversity and inclusion um, in, within our organizations. And there's obviously not one thing that we can do to change that. Um, but what can organizations like Sask Outdoors do to connect with more Indigenous groups and people? Just reach out to them. Like there's a lot of good elders that will work with you. You know, then one thing about our elders is they're always willing to share the knowledge. You're just going to practice a little protocol, give them some tobacco. They'll be willing to share their teachings with you. Um, a number of our First Nations, man, they'll host you. Like if you, if Sasko Doors wants to go to Grandmother's Bay and participate like in a tradition in fishing and uh, smoking fish and um, everything else that, you know, smoking meat, uh everything else we can arrange all of that you can still see the connection to that even in the south you can still see those connections by all means like i I would reach out and i can help facilitate and open doors and and, uh connect you with um, tribal councils as well as individual first nations as well as elders when it comes to working with on any of that stuff um so just just let me know and i'll be by all means we'll, we'll help you make the connections and my advice to you would be to bring on maybe elder advisor groups to really help you know, you get two or three really good elders that, you know, that know their language, that know their culture, their ceremony, their protocols, bring them on board as a advise, elder advisors. You know, a lot of our elders, you know, we still utilize our elders. You know, we don't, um, we don't forget about them. You know, we honor them. We recognize them. We respect them for their years and years of service. And they have a lot of life experience that they can share with us and that they're, they're willing to pass on. Um, you know, before they transition to the next life, but we want to uh, utilize them. And, and I, I would encourage you to do the same, you know, but any, any way that I can open doors, by all means, there's a lot of good people out there that would be, would love the opportunities to connect with you. See my good buddy, Gerald McKenzie up in grandmother's Bay, man. He'll, uh, he's a, uh, he's a uh, trapper King and uh, he knows how to trap you, man. He knows how to do everything. I always joke around, or, you know, if there's ever an apocalypse or if there's ever a disaster and, Society breaks down. I'm going to grandmother's bay and I'll be able to live with, live with Gerald. And because he knows, you know, he even told me one time when uh, a story of him and his grandfather, when they, I was his uncle, I think it might've been his grandfather, or his uncle, they got caught in a blizzard. And uh, so it was a complete whiteout. And so what they did was, you know, some people panic and then they end up dying, you know, and hypothermia sets in um, because they knew how to survive. And I never knew this. He said that the temperature of snow, is pretty much close to zero. And so what they did was they, him and his uncle, the blizzard was blowing over them. So they just covered their, they covered their whole bodies with snow until there was a good insulation and everything was blowing over them. And they made a little breathing hole and they made the little breathing hole up into the thing. And they ended up surviving that blizzard. And then when it passed and they woke up in the morning, got it got through like the, their bodies were insulated by the snow it's around the zero degrees they have, you know, whatever they were wearing to, for that time. Imagine it was probably pretty warm being the winter in the north. So they were able, to, that's just one story that they've shared. So it just shows the traditional knowledge. Of course, uh, me and you, if we, we'd be panicking and trying to walk to the nearest farm and they'd find us in the morning, five kilometers by some bush somewhere in springtime. But uh, 
<laughs> it wasn't the same with them because of their experience, you know, that connection to the land and knowing how to survive in the elements that paid off. So that would be my advice to you. And then, you know, I can help you help you any way that I can to open doors. Things like that would be really meaningful. And I don't think not only just for a Sasco doors, but for a lot of other organizations out there that are looking to do some of that similar kind of work and, and reaching out. But I know, I know truth and reconciliation has been a, a big topic. And um, I know I've talked to a lot of professors on different campuses and, and experts. And I, I think a lot of indigenous, sorry, professors and, and experts. I feel like what a lot of them have said is they feel like they are stretched in so many different places because there's different committees on campus. There's different organizations outside of campus that are all wanting to talk about truth and reconciliation. And, and they feel like, well, we have to be in all these places, but how, how do predominantly white organizations avoid kind of tokenism and how can we pursue truth and reconciliation as a collective community and society? That's a really good question. I don't know if I can give you an answer on that, but I'll try to give you a broad answer. For me, I think that um, we have a lot of opportunity right now. There are a number of organizations and individuals and institutions that are looking at ways on how they can move forward on reconciliation. They just don't know how. And I know that there's a lot of, uh, for my discussions with some of them, there's a lot of fear because they don't want to... um, misstep or take a wrong step and offend anybody they want to continue to work with uh, uh, first nations people as we move forward in reconciliation i think you know looking at the calls to action and looking at ways that we can we can implement them i'll give you one example where i'm working with an organization right now the saskatchewan rough riders you know um i want to send cindy fuchs and uh their GM there that are uh, Craig Reynolds are very open. They have a reconciliation committee. They have leadership. They have indigenous uh, people that sit on that committee and they're looking at ways that they can implement the calls to action. You know, they've done a number of things this year. They had an orange shirt day, you know, which a privilege I was able to speak at and um, chief Cameron couldn't make it at that time. So I spoke at their orange shirt day and it was very, um, uh, it was felt really good to, to feed off the energy of the riders. You know, I got them all cheering, got them all going and, you know, talked about some stuff and they were just, ah, you know, they were all going crazy. So and that felt, that was a really powerful moment. And so they are recognizing these institutions, such as the riders and others are recognizing that they need to do something. They are recognizing that they, they have to take actions. And that's just one example. Another example that they've done is um, the James Smith incident would happened on September 4th. They brought the, the thousand of the young people in, in the membership down to a rider game. And they had the, uh, the leadership of the three nations there, James Smith, Chikasta, Payson, and Peter Chapman come down. And then they recognized them. And they uh, I think all the football players wore a little patch on their helmets, James Smith strong. And uh, that was just something that they did to honor them and recognize them. And uh, it was a very powerful moment. And then again, another powerful moment to be a part of though. So those are just two examples of, of what we can do. You know, um, the writers organized the committee, you know, the same thing I'd reach out, you know, encourage other organizations and institutions, reach out to the, to the leadership, reach out to the elders in your area and talk to them, you know, bring them in, hear them out. And that's basically, I think, what in what what First Nations want on reconciliation is to be treated with the same respect that we treat others with, you know, to to be heard and to be to be seen and to be listened to. 
and to be acknowledged. I think that's so important. You know, I appreciate all the land acknowledgements that are happening now. It's everywhere, you know, everywhere you go. Acknowledge where we treaty six territory or the, you know, as in Vancouver. And I think it's the Musqueam, Squamish, uh, Suelatooth uh, nations in that area. So everybody is doing those land acknowledgements and that's good. But what are they actually doing to build relationships with the First Nations people in that area? How are they opening doors for them in the economy? How are they improving, you know, uh, recruitment of uh, uh, technical and trade institutes and universities and and other? And how? What are the school boards doing to ensure Indigenous success? You know, how are they ensuring that their students receive the wraparound supports and have an understanding of what Indigenous people and the struggles that we face and still continue to face? But I don't think reconciliation can be achieved overnight. You know, we didn't get here. And I said this time and time again, it's been about 170 years that we've been dealing with this or more, you know, and it's not going to change overnight. But I think we can be a part of the people that work together to change things. And I think uh, we got a lot of work to do, and that that I can acknowledge that. But we got to start somewhere, and I think we start now. And even though it might seem messy, you know, as a part of reconciliation, there's truth, and sometimes that truth has to come out, and um, it has to be acknowledged for us to move forward. Like in regards to the Pope's visit um, this year, it was this year was just surreal. There was just so much that took place, and lots to pro, lots that I didn't even get to process. It's just. Boom, boom, boom. I've only been here five years, but it feels more like 10. I think, Mike, when I met you, my hair was as black as, black as yours. Look at me now. So, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot of work, and it's, uh, but it's, it's a very, um, when you achieve things for your people and you accomplish things and you, you move the yardsticks a little bit further down the road, it's a really great feeling of fulfillment that you've made a difference. And you've also made things better for the, the future generations and for the ones that are coming after you. That was a really great answer and very validating. You know, you started your answer with talking about fears of doing it wrong or that it's messy. And that, um, those are all things that conversations we've had at Sask Outdoors. And so to hear it from you is uh, reassuring that we are moving somewhere. Yeah. Just start. Just get started. You know, have one elder in a day. Say, have a, here's our elder for the month yeah. or here's our elder for the week and go from there. And just get going. Start somewhere. Look at the calls to action. Review them. See how can hey we can do this one. You know, implement and implement it. And that's all it is. It's just implementing the calls to action. You know, and doing our best one step at a time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We had another podcast guest who who was talking about the treaty land sharing network. Um, so we wanted to ask you how you think treaty land rights can help work towards truth and reconciliation. Well, I don't know if you heard of the Sask First Act. There's a bit of a fight going on right now with the government. So it's not going so well uh, with the province, but we do have the support of the federal government. I think that if we're going to, to move forward here in, in reconciliation, there's two things that we're going to need to be able to rebuild. And number one is our children because they represent the future. And right now, and, and, and it's sad to hear these statistics, but there are more children in the child welfare system now than at the height of the residential school system in, in child welfare. That's just one example. So the children continue to be attacked by governmental systems. Uh, Justice Sinclair himself, when they made the calls to action, the first five dealt specifically with child welfare. And he didn't do that by accident. 
He said that was done for a reason because the child welfare system had to change, you know, and it led to the act respecting First Nations, Métis and Inuit children and started the, the move towards First Nations people working towards bringing their children home and healing their families from institutional uh, trauma that uh, it moved from the residential school system into the modern child welfare system. So you have those examples right there. And I think that when you, you, you look at those, those systems that are in place, uh, especially when it comes to the land, you might say, well, where are you going with this? Um, if we're, we need our children, number one, if we're going to re move forward and recover, they represent the future. Number two, we need the land because those are those are things that lead to true nationhood is people and land so right now we don't have access to resources the provincial government takes the position because of the national national natural resource transfer act of 1930 or the constitution act uh, the government of canada unilaterally gave ownership of the natural resources to the provinces of alberta manitoba and um, saskatchewan and transferred those natural resources. And without consultations with First Nations people, <clears throat> without their consents, they also did something else in that year, and I don't think it was by accident. They also put it in the Indian Act that it was illegal for an Indigenous per people or nations to hire a lawyer. So they made it against the law for us to get legal advice. And um, so when they did that, they made it against the law to get legal advice, um, we were hampered from getting proper legal advice when it comes to land claims or, or any other issues that we're dealing with as Indigenous people. And that policy was in place until I for 30 years. So we couldn't get legal advice. We couldn't talk to a lawyer. But two important policy changes happened in 1960, and that was at the then Conservative government of Diefenbaker, number one, he amended the Indian Act so that we could hire lawyers to deal with land claims and other outstanding issues. And number two, we, um, he removed the disenfranchisement of Indigenous people from receiving a university degree. Could you believe that if you, prior to 1960, if I chose to go and get an education degree or any type of formal university training, I would lose my status as a First Nations person. So it prevented us from getting educated. It prevented us from building our nations. It prevented us from learning and kept us within that system. And so those things led to where we are today with uh, 1960 that led us to where we are today in terms of treaty land entitlement and other areas. Um, and it led to the establishment of the Indian Claims Commission in 1973 from the Trudeau government. Um, and I think all of that happened because 1960, we were able to hire a lawyer. In 1960, we were able to get a university education. So our leaders started getting educated in the 60s. Of course, this is when the same civil rights was moving in the United States. There was just a movement of civil rights and, and, and civil liberties and, you know, breaking off the yokes of oppression and chain, challenging systems and orders of government. That wasn't just in the United States. It was here in Canada amongst Indigenous leadership. 1968, the Trudeau government instituted the white paper to basically eradicate the you know special status for indigenous people and of course we pushed back on that at that time and our leaders such as Harold Cardinal the late David Hennecke and many others stood and said no they issued the red paper to counter that and then the call Frank Calder from uh, Niska in British Columbia took uh, land claims to court and the Supreme Court made a ruling in 1973 a Calder decision 
It was a split decision, but in the three of the justices in that decision said, there has to be a recognition of land rights when it comes to Indigenous people. And that's what led us to the creation of the Indian Claims Commission and to where we are today in a lot of these modern treaties and a lot of the uh, outstanding treaty land entitlement business that's still outside. There's a lot of outstanding treaty treaty land business that's still not being addressed by Canada yet. Yes, we're, uh, we're settling basically all of their crookedness, you know, when they 1909, the Laurier government took about all the prime farmland from a number of First Nations here in Saskatchewan, my First Nation included, they took 20,000 acres of Muscopeding First Nation. We're just now settling that. 111 years, 112 years later, um, we're finally getting things made right. So it's a, it's a long time. It's a process that's coming. Now we have the Natural Resource Transfer Act. Now we have the Sask First Act, which we are opposing as First Nations people, because we believe that, um, you know, from our understanding of the treaties, yes, I know they put in the writing there, ceded and surrendered to Her Majesty the Queen in perpetuity forever and ever. But there's something called the spirit and intent of treaty. So there were a number of things that were discussed and agreed to a treaty that minister that the um, Alexander Morris, the treaty commissioner, did not put inside the written text of the treaties. Number one was that we would agree to share the land. It was never about one party having the resources, having all the benefits, and the other party living in poverty. It was never about that. It was a, the treaties were about sharing land. We were told we'd continue to be able to practice our governance, our religion, our belief, our, our traditional ways of parenting, our connection to the land. All of that would continue undisturbed. Well, well before the ink was even dry on the treaties, the government had, the McDonald government had already prepared the Indian Act, a piece of legislation that's still in operation that continues to press and hold back First Nations from achieving their true potential. So there's a number of things. The children and the land are important. And I think we need to, um, we're in for a fight right now uh, with the with the provincial government, but it's not that we want all of, of the resources. What we There's two things we want. Number one, we would like part of the resources to be able to build our nations up build some prosperity for First Nations, address some of the social determinants of health, but also uh, we want to ensure that the, the development of resources is sustainable. Because when me and you and everyone are on this podcast or who listen to it are long gone, it's these little ones that are coming up in the unborn. They're the ones that are going to deal with climate change. They're the ones that are going to deal with 3%, three degree climate increases. And we already see how it's impacting our region. Um, I've talked to a number of our chiefs that farm. They said now the rains are hitting later in the season rather than they used to come earlier in the spring. And it's all because of what we're doing, the, the man-made damages and impacts of climate change. So I could talk about this all night, as you can tell, but uh, I'll leave it at that. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm trying to give you a, a broad answer and kind of give you a better understanding of where we're coming from as Indigenous people and why we take the positions that we take. And all starting with that education. Yeah. Well, Dave, you do such a good job at talking, which is why we chose you as a guest too. Um, but we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the interview. And um, one of the questions we ask all of our guests is, what, where is your favorite place to visit in Saskatchewan? We know you visited a lot of different places during your time. Oh my God, you're putting me on the spot. There's 74 First Nations and now <laughs> someone's going to be mad. Um, you can't go based on polling. Can I have two? Sure, you can have two. We'll give you. All right. Number one would be, I love 
this, the, I love the being on top of the hill, looking down at the Treaty 4 grounds and calling Lake. It's so beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's so beautiful. The Our governance centers there, our big teepee where all our chiefs meet annually in Treaty 4 and assembly. And we have our big Treaty 4 celebrations in September. Come down sometime, Lake. Come and experience it. Come on a sure will. come and have some food and we'll I'll show you around. But it happens every September, right around the when the treaty was signed. So I love that view, being at the top of that hill and just seeing all the campground and all the people and the chiefs come together. I love that view and just looking over into into uh, not calling like Mission Lake, Mission Lake there uh, towards um uh Labrette. So I, I just love that view. Um another one of my favorite places and is in the north. God, there's so many. It has to be Miss Snippy right across from Grandmother's Bay. It's so beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been right off where the Churchill River flows through, but great fishing. I, I go ice fishing there every winter. My good buddy there, Gerald McKenzie, in leadership, and uh, that's uh, one of Chief Tammy Cook Searson's members. And uh, I always go, and we always go fishing in the summer. So I always do a summer fishing trip. The only thing I don't like is we go in July, the air conditioning doesn't work too good in the cabin. So it's hot. <laughs> so there's no really place to cool off, but a buggy. I love it. I love it. Um, in the fall, spring, and then the winter, just beautiful. So, and you can, you know, something you can drink the water right out of the, the lake. Isn't that crazy? Couldn't do that down here. We'd be dead. Yeah. It's brilliant. Or in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. But there's just, there's just so many places and people don't realize they just think that the prairies is all flat, right? They don't realize that there's a whole half the province that's got forests and rivers and lakes and it's beautiful. So yeah, those are, those are two of my favorite places. Yeah. You did a really nice job of painting the picture of what, the, what they're like for people who haven't experienced those places. I encourage you to go, go. If you have an opportunity, go book a cabinet, Miss Nippy, take your family up there. Huge cabins. They sleep nine, 10 people. And that's just great. And you can hire all the guides from around too. And, uh, Gerald, Gerald, my, my, my counselor buddy, he'll be your guide, but they also have guides at uh, Thompson cabins too. They'll take you out on the water and show you where all the, where all the pickerel holes are. And then they'll have a good fish fry with you at the end of the day. Yeah. Sounds delicious. One other question we ask all our guests is if you could change one thing about the world, what would that be? If I could change one thing about the world, what could that be? Our dependence on fossil fuels. I really like that answer, Dave. I know that oil company is probably saying he's never going to sit on our boards. <laughs> I don't know if oil company execs listen to the podcast, but we, we can branch out. Well, um, I just, I like the discovery yesterday, the announcement from the United States government. They have, they've actually achieved fusion without a reaction. Like it's just, it's, and it's in the potential to generate um, a huge amount of energy that's green and clean and uh, doesn't impact the environment. I think that's huge. It'll be decades still away, but it will be a neat thing that when we've, we've kind of hopefully solved this first wave of, of climate, of the climate crisis, that will be there for. A- well, maybe they'll be able to use that to save the planet or achieve interstellar travel or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We'll be long gone by then. Whatever Star Trek is. We'll that's be how we bones and yeah. drying in the ground or it will be fossils by then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me though. Good discussion. Oh, Dave, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah. I'm happy I was here tonight. Thank you very much. Mike, what were your biggest takeaways from this conversation? 
talking more to Dave and to uh, a few of the other elders that I get to talk to on a more regular basis, I need to travel uh, to Northern Saskatchewan and, and do it soon because I remember having a conversation um, with an elder recently and I had made the mention of, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I I've been up North up to Melfort and, and we did some things up there with my class and she's like, young man, uh, Milford is not Northern Saskatchewan. And I'm like, yes. And hearing Dave talk about all these places and some of our other guests have mentioned, I need to get up North and I need to connect myself more with that part of Saskatchewan and with the people there and, and build these kind of, yeah, lasting relationships. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough to know David, but there's just so many of the resources and people that we're missing out on enjoying. Leah, how about you? David was great at recalling historical facts and dates and information. And although I knew some of the things that he mentioned in our conversation, there were certainly some things that were new to me. So it was a good reminder that there's still lots for me to learn and that some of that learning is best done through conversation and relationship rather than through reading books, which are also great. Um, But there is a lot of nuance and depth and complicated aftermath uh, of some of the decisions that have been made and that I hope to keep learning about that uh, in the future. Yeah. And I think even just listening to him talk, there's a, even though we've been pushing for indigenous professional development in schools and in education sector, it's just so evident while talking to David that there's just so much more to learn and that can only be done in some cases through building relationships and, and those connections. This podcast is produced in association with Sask Outdoors. Check us out online at saskoutdoors.org.